Thank you, choir, orchestra, Caroline. I want to begin this morning by asking a question. How is sinful man made right with holy God? How can a sinful man be made right with a God who is holy? That is an ancient question, and there have been two basic answers that are given. There is the answer of the legalist who says, well, I can do something to make myself right with God. And they in the Bible are represented by the Pharisees. The Pharisees believe that by doing something, that by keeping rules, and they had many rules, there were certain days that were holy, there were certain observations regarding washing and so forth, and they thought that if I keep these rules, then that makes me right with God. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So to the Pharisees, Jesus said, You look right, but you're not. We have in the church today, those who think that I can do something to make myself right with God. For instance, if I'm baptized. Surely by being baptized, that makes me acceptable to God. I become right with God as I am baptized. There are those who think, well, it's, it's church membership. If I belong to the church, that makes me right with God. I was talking with Steve about that, and he said, no, it is not church membership that makes one right with God. It is belonging to the choir that makes one right with God. Or if I do good works, if I feed the hungry, I clothe the poor, I do things of this nature, then that makes me right with God. So the answer to some is that I am right with God by what I do. That was the legalist. At the other end, there were the libertines, and they believed that God's grace actually gave them license to do whatever they wished to do, and they were represented by the Sadducees. And there are those today who believe that I can be a Christian and live my life contrary to the Word of God and still be right with God. Recently I was reading in my devotional time, and I'm reading through the book of Romans. I was intrigued with chapter 6, which deals with this issue. I want us to look at it today. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse number 1. When Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this that our Old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer 
be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now then in these verses, the Apostle Paul is conducting a conversation with an imaginary Jewish believer. There's a question that is asked there in verse number one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? So the question that is being entertained is, shall we continue in sin or is it okay as a believer, a follower of Christ, is it okay if I continue in my sin? Well, you might think, well, that is a ridiculous question. But the truth is, it is a logical question. If I have been forgiven of my sin, and if I am secure in Christ, and I am going to heaven someday, then why should I be concerned about sin? Why should it concern me at all? So the truth is, it is a logical question. It is a natural question because we enjoy sin. Now, I know that some of you say, well, I don't enjoy sin. Well, then you wouldn't be tempted if you didn't enjoy sin. The truth is we enjoy sin. That is the reason we are tempted to sin. Ray Stedman said any suggestion that we can escape the penalty for our sin and still enjoy the action arouses a considerable degree of interest in us. So if there's any possibility that I can continue to enjoy my sin without any consequence, then I would be interested in that. So it's a natural question. In the context here, it is also a pious question. If you look at chapter 5, verse number 20, and the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So there is a pious element to this question. Here's what they were saying. If grace is greater than sin, then the more I sin, the more grace there is. So I am actually bringing glory to God by sinning because there is more grace as a result. Now that is the question that is being posed. Should I continue in my sin? Is it okay for me to continue in my sin as a follower of Christ? Now the answer is in verse number two. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Paul says, now, how can we continue in sin when we have died to sin? What does that mean? I have died to sin. What does that mean? Well, it does not mean that sin is dead in you. I have known people in my life who have said that, that sin is dead in me, that sin has no attraction to me, that I live above sin. Herschel Hobbes wrote, The New Testament never promises sinless perfection in this life. Those who claim to have achieved it are victims of the ancient Gnostic dualism which distinguish between the flesh and the spirit. Now Paul deals with that in chapter number 7. You're familiar with this in verse number 19. He said, for the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. Would that be your testimony? 
The good that I want to do, I fail to do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And then in verse number 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. So when he says that we have died to sin, it does not mean that sin is dead in me. It does not mean that we should die to sin. I know that one can go to a conference or hear certain preachers and so forth and they say, well, we need to die to sin. But as I read this, Paul says we have died to sin. It does not mean that we are dying to sin. There are those who think that as I grow in my faith, I become more mature in my faith that I am dying to sin. But again, it's past tense. Paul said we have died to sin. Maybe we can understand it better as we look again in verse number one where he says, are we to continue in sin? That is in the present tense which speaks of continuous action. Are we to continue in sin? Understand here he is not dealing with committing a sin. He is talking about living a lifestyle of sin. Habitual sin. He said that as a believer, we do not live a lifestyle of sin. So Paul then addresses the subject of sin in the believer. He says that we are dead to sin. Well, we know that we can sin. We know that in all likelihood we will sin. But as a believer, we don't want to sin. I had a friend some years ago who was in evangelistic music. He was ministering in California, Eddie Smith. And he was witnessing to a person and talking to them and shared his faith. He asked questions and he shared with him. And the guy stopped him and he said, you know what? If I believe like you believe, you say you believe, then I would sin all I want to. And Eddie said, I sin more than I want to. Well, that is also my testimony, and I would imagine that it is yours as well, that I sin far more than I want to. So Paul says that we are dead to sin. We don't want to sin, and we are dead to a lifestyle of sin and joined to Christ. Now, he illustrates what it means to be joined to Christ through baptism, verse number 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Ray Stedman said that this passage is a dry passage. In other words, it's not speaking of water baptism. It is speaking of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're probably familiar with that term the truth is we all have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit if we are saved. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. For one, by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Now if that's true, that means then that the evidence of being baptized by the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues. I know that there are those who believe that, that in fact they'll ask you, have you received the baptism of the Spirit? And what they mean by that oftentimes is that you have spoken in tongues. Well, what does it say here? That we have all 
been baptized by the Spirit into the body. But then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 30, Paul says, all do not have gifts of healing, do they? And the construction that is used here requires a no answer, a negative answer. No. All do not speak with tongues, do they? And the answer that is required again is no. So if he says that all believers have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, but not all speak in tongues, so that can't be the evidence. So what does that mean? That we are baptized by the Spirit. That is the means by which we are placed in the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit, when we are saved, places us in the body of Christ, and that's what he is showing us here, that we have been placed in the body of Christ. And then he says we are grafted in, verse number 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. The word united that is used there literally means to graft a branch into another. So we are grafted into Christ. So we are placed in the body by the Holy Spirit and then we are grafted in. We are united. That means then we participate in his death. Verse number 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. He said, knowing this. So this is important. He said, I want you to know this. What does it mean? As a believer, a follower of Christ, I am no longer a slave of sin. Matthew Henry wrote, we do not live without sin, but we are not to live in sin. As a follower of Christ, we do not live without sin, but we are not to live in sin. Sin is not your master. Verse number seven, for he who has died is free from sin. So I participate then. I have been placed in the body of Christ, grafted in. That means I participate in his death, but I also participate in his resurrection. Verse number eight. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So I participate then in his death and also in his resurrection. So in verse number 9, he continues knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So he said that Jesus died. We know that Jesus died on the cross. He died and he rose from the grave. That's what he said. Jesus died, rose from the grave. Look at verse 11. Even so, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider is a bookkeeping term. It means to whatever is in the account of Christ is placed in my account. It is a bookkeeping term. So he says, consider yourself to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. Now, look at verse number 11 again. Consider yourselves to be dead. And then he describes it, verse 12. Therefore, because I am dead to sin, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lust, and do not go on representing the members of your body to, as sins, as instruments of unrighteousness. Okay, <clears throat> I am dead to sin, 
But death is a slow process, and that was the reason that the Romans liked the cross, the crucifixion, because it was a slow process. And a person who was crucified had to suffer for the crimes that they had committed. So Jesus' death on the cross was a slow process, and our death to sin is a slow process as well. For instance, if, if we die, over a period of time our body deteriorates, right? So we die, we are dead, and as time goes by our body deteriorates. All right, so the Bible says that I have died to sin over a period of time my old sinful habits and so forth die. It is a slow process. So he says then that I have died to sin. It is a slow process, but then I am alive to Christ, and so I begin to reflect Christ. See, that's what happens to us when we're saved. We are dead to sin. The process begins so I am dying to these old habits and so forth that are sinful, but I'm alive to Christ and now I begin to reflect Him. Let me illustrate this. There's a house in our neighborhood where we live and I have watched it sold and new people move in through the years. There was a family that owned the house. They had a couple of boys and so the house reflected that they were a family with children. They had the swings outside and things of that nature. You look at the house and you think there are some children there. Then the house sold again. There was a family that moved in and they didn't seem to care much about the house. They didn't do the yard. They neglected the yard. They neglected the house. And so they began to, to neglect the house and the house reflected that. Now then I have some new neighbors, Alex and Sylvia, and uh, they are in the yard all the time. They are always working on that house, and now then the house is reflecting them. See, that's what happens to us. We died to sin, so I slowly begin removing those things that are sinful, and I'm alive to Christ, so I begin to reflect Christ. So he says, I am dead to sin. I am joined to Christ. Therefore, I am responsible as a son, which is what the Bible calls us, his children. Hebrews 12, 7, God deals with you as with sons. God, our father, deals with us as a father deals with his children, and he does so when we sin. So you might ask the question, okay, if I am a believer and I sin, how does God deal with that? How does God deal with my sin? I think there are four steps that God goes through in the process. The first is conviction. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. And if you know the Lord, you know what that means. That, that I have, I'm convicted that what I'm doing is wrong. That was Simon Peter. Simon Peter denied the Lord. And the Bible says, Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before cock crows you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So he was convicted. What I did was wrong. Let me suggest to you that if you can sin and there is no sense of conviction, if I were you, I'd check my salvation. 
The Father brings conviction. The Holy Spirit brings conviction when we sin. That the reason for that is so that we might repent of our sin and turn to the Lord. If you do not, the second step, I think, is discipline. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For those whom the Lord loves His sons, He disciplines. I know that uh, there are some who don't think of God as a disciplining God. They think of God as being a loving God. But because God loves, He disciplines. Now, you know, when my children were young, I disciplined them. I didn't discipline somebody else's kid. I wanted to, but I didn't. <laughs> well, the same thing is true with God the Father. He disciplines His children, not the devil's children. So if you are a child of God, and you are in sin, and the Holy Spirit brings conviction, and you don't repent of it and turn from it, then God will discipline you. I think that some sickness, not all of it, but I think sometimes sickness is the result of discipline. Sometimes the loss of a job, financial issues, so forth. I think sometimes those are, those are God's discipline in someone's life. Not always. I don't know. That's not my business anyway. I don't know. But I think sometimes those things happen as God's discipline. Well, let's say that then, then you still don't repent because that is the purpose for it. So God brings conviction that you might repent. If you don't, then there is discipline that you might repent. But if you still don't repent, then God turns you over to the sin to work out its natural consequence. In Psalm chapter 81, verses 11 and 12, But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me, so I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. You see, folks, I think that you can go into sin and, and God convicts you and disciplines you and you hang on to it. Finally, God will say, okay, I'm going to allow that sin to work out its consequence in your life. In my last church, I had a deacon uh, was told that he was involved in an affair. And so I called him. We had breakfast at 6 o'clock in the morning and I asked him, I said, are you, I said, I have been told that you are having an affair with this woman. Is, is that so? And I could tell when I asked him that, that it was so. And I said to him, this is going to cost you far more than you ever imagined. And it did. He lost his family with a lot of other things. Now, he did repent later on, but he had the consequences. He had the residue that came with it. But I believe that God deals with his children in a way that he brings conviction of sin that you might repent. If you do not, then there is discipline. If you do not repent, then he gives you over to the sin to work out its consequence in your life. And if you still don't repent, then he can take your life. In 1 John 5, 16, there is a sin leading to death. In other words, I believe that there can come a time when God says, you are not going to embarrass me, you're not going to embarrass the kingdom any longer, and he can take your physical life. I, I, I think that in some instances, I have known of that happening. I don't know, but I think that. Paul says, we're dead to sin. We're joined to Christ, and we're responsible as children of God. And then he reminds us we're under grace, verse number 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now folks, there are some who want to try to live their lives, their Christian lives under the law, because I can check things off. You know, 
I did this, I didn't do this, so forth, and I can sort of keep an account. They want to live under the law. But the law condemns us and discourages us. In chapter 7, verse number 24, Paul said, Wretched man that I am who will set me free from the body of this death. You know what law does when we're trying to live by the law? It sets a standard and says this is what you're supposed to do. We fail to live up to the standard and then the law condemns us for not living up to the standard. So we become discouraged as a result of it. You know, I can't live and we're defeated as a result of it because I can't do it. The law sets a standard, I can't live up to it, it condemns me for not living up to it. And so as a result of that I'm, I'm defeated and then I can become depressed spiritually. I, I, I've known people and perhaps some of you who are listening have would put yourself in that category that I know that this is the standard, I have not lived up to it, the law has condemned me for not living up to it and now then I am discouraged and defeated and depressed as a result of it. Because I am trying to make myself acceptable to God but what I do or what I don't do, thinking that I can make myself right with God. Well, look at grace in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, Paul has been speaking about the believer and sin, and he goes through all of this in chapter number 7. And then he comes to chapter 8, verse number 1. There is therefore now, not later, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because he says we are under grace. What does that mean? Well, to me it means that God knows me. The psalmist said he remembers our frame. God knows me. He knows my weaknesses. He knows my imperfections. He knows my failures. God knows me. And yet the Bible says God loves me. The word that is always used referring to God's love for us is agape, which is not an emotional love. You know, we love some people emotionally and they're doing what I want them to do, then I love them. And when they don't, then I, I'm, I'm not, I don't love them. I'm frustrated with them. That's not the word that God uses. He always uses agape, which speaks of a love that is that is unconditional. It means when God says, I love you, and this is, this is such a blessing to me, and I hope it is to you. When God says, I love you, he is saying, I love you because of who I am, not because of who you are. God's love for me has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. So God knows me, he loves me, and I love him because he first loved me. So Paul reminds us here in verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Grace is not a license to live contrary to the word of God. It is an expression of the love of God for you. And because he loves you, you want to live in a way that brings honor to him. Are you struggling, trying to earn his favor, 
Or are you abusing his grace? Then today I would encourage you to allow God to make things right in your life. Our Father, we come to this time of invitation asking, Lord, that you bless, that your Holy Spirit brings conviction and that people respond to that so that there is not the discipline. Lord, I pray today that you would reveal to us what you see when you look at us, and we thank you for loving us. Lord, I pray your blessings upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand. Choir's going to sing, and invitation is extended. If you've never trusted Christ, I encourage you to do so today. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open. If you just want to come and pray, I hope you'll do that. Stand with me, please. As we stand, they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do. Well, this evening uh, we have uh, at six o'clock we have orchestra night, as Steve's already said. It's just really a fun time. I enjoy uh, coming. They have hamburgers and hot dogs, cracker jacks, rubber balls, everything that you can imagine. We uh, dancing girls, all of it. We just have a great time, and the orchestra plays, and and it's just a time of fellowship. So I hope that you can be here at six o'clock. Also, Celebration of Liberty is coming up, and uh, as you know, it is free, but you have to have a ticket. And so tickets are available back in uh, Ellis Hall after the service is over. Now then, we're going to take just a minute here, and I'm going to call on our moderator, Brian Barnes, to come and lead us in a special call church conference. 